Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. By way of introduction this morning, I just you don't have to turn there. I just want you to listen. Um, as we look at Romans, or as I direct our thoughts to Romans 13, Romans 13 and verse 8 to 10, Paul says this. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now in the preceding verses, Paul spells out for us as Christians our duties, our responsibilities to the governing authorities, to the state. Um, and he says in verse 7, he ends that section by saying, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. But then he pivots, as I just read in verses 8 to 10, to explain our really what our primary duty and responsibility is. Uh, it's not just to the state or um, to any one particular entity. It is our responsibility to everyone. He says, we are to owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. He says, since we're talking about paying your obligations, <clears throat> he says, let me remind you of the obligation you and I will never, ever pay in full. That's what he means by that statement in verse, the beginning of verse 8, owe nothing to anyone. doesn't mean that we can't take on some debt reasonably. Um, although it's not advisable to get into debt. That's not really the primary thrust of what he's saying. He's saying, since we're talking about paying obligations, the one debt you will never pay off and thus will always owe to everyone is this obligation of love, that we would love others. And Paul says the one, essentially the one primary responsibility every believer has to others, regardless of who they are, is to love them is to love them. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about other Christians? Is he talking about family? Is he talking about uh, strangers? Is he talking about enemies? Who, who is he referring to here in verse 8 when he says we are to owe nothing to anyone except to love them? Is it family, Christian? Who's he talking about? And the answer is yes. He's talking about all of those people. He's talking about everybody. The debt we owe to everyone, regardless of who they are, is to love them, to love them. This is our responsibility to all people in all contexts, in all, at all times. So we begin here in this short little two-part series here this Sunday, and we'll continue next Sunday and this little topical detour from our, uh, our regular study of 1 Corinthians, because I want to consider, for just a couple of weeks here, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Those two things. Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And I want us to consider that for just a couple of Sundays, because there's an interplay there, which is our personal responsibility in life and God's absolute sovereignty, which we affirm and believe. Because those are two truths that are both taught in Scripture. They're both within the Scriptures because um, 
Both of them are in Scripture, and they seem at times to be diametrically opposed to one another. We often don't keep them in the proper balance. We don't keep them in the proper balance. Either we gravitate into the orbit of man's responsibility, and we sort of minimize or forget about God's sovereignty, or we gravitate toward God's sovereignty, and we elevate that, and we actually lose sight of man's responsibility, our responsibility. So we're going we're gonna to take this apart into two, two sections. Obviously, this week we're going to start with man's responsibility, which I believe is kind of summarily explained in Romans 13, verse 8. This is what we're to do. Our responsibility, and I don't mean like our responsibility in general. I mean like what is in, in holistically, what is our responsibility? We owe to all people in all contexts at all times to love them. In fact, we are to walk in love. We are to walk in love, which really takes us to our text this morning. So that's just by way of introduction. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 1 and 2. That's our text for this morning. Paul is um, in the book of Ephesians from chapter 4, 5, and 6. He is applying the great doctrines. He is uh, unpacked in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And he begins in chapter 4, reminding us that we are to live up to our high calling in Christ Uh, in every way, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And he does that in verses 1 to 16 by saying we're to walk in unity. So it's very similar themes to what we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians. In verses 17 to 32, he reminds us to walk in holiness. And then as we get into chapter 5, which is our text this morning, verses 1 to 5, he calls us to walk in love. So if you belong to Christ this morning, God expects you to walk in unity with other believers. I think we all are in agreement on that and understand that. He expects you to live a decidedly holy life that is increasingly set apart from sin to God. And, as we're going to see in our text this morning, he expects you and I to walk in love. To owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, in verse 1, he gives us this um, exhortation, kind of a a summary. In verse one, he, he says, you know, therefore, so it's, it's kind of bringing things to some kind of preliminary conclusion. But then he exhorts us to be imitators of God. Imitators of God. Now, this word for imitator is the word that we would get our English word mimic from. It's a very similar sounding word. It doesn't, you know, we don't take the present meaning and import it into the past, but it has the same idea of, um, of something that's copied, something who Im- we almost inhabit or impersonate something. To, he says we are to become, literally, become imitators of God. In other words, it's a process. It's a process for the believer. We are to progressively, step by step, mimic or pattern our lives after God. After God. We're commanded, this, this is one of the only places in Scripture we're commanded to imitate God the Father. God the Father. We're commanded to imitate godly men in a lot of places. Um, we're going to get to it in just a couple of weeks, but in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, imitate me. 
Um, he says, the writer of Hebrews says multiple times that we are to follow in the example of him, imitate him. Second Thessalonians 3, Paul says twice, follow in my example as I follow Christ. So we're to imitate godly men. We're to imitate Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11. But here, interestingly enough, we're told to imitate God himself, meaning God, most likely God the Father. So the question is, how do we do that? I mean, how do we even begin to do that? How do we as creatures imitate the transcendent, infinite, sovereign creator of the universe? It's kind of a staggering command. It's a staggering uh, ask by Paul here. Because as we think about God's immensity, his character, his, you know, his wisdom, his righteousness, his truthfulness, all of these things, we are really left in awe. God is perfectly wise, and he is perfectly righteous, and he is perfectly truthful, and, and we're not. We're not any of those things perfectly. If anything, it humbles us to hear a command like this. So how can our wisdom and righteousness and truth and fill in the blank, how can that compare with God? How can we imitate that? And how can our righteousness compare with God's righteousness, our faithfulness? How does that ever measure up to God's faithfulness? And yet, that's what he commands us to do. He tells us to be imitators of God. And he specifically drills down in one aspect of God's character here in verses 1 and 2. He singles out the particular dimension of God's love. The thing we owe to every person this is what we are to imitate of God, imitate of God. So that's what I want us to do this morning is to just unpack verse 1 and 2. I want to simply look at these two verses in which Paul challenges us to do the very thing that we ought to do for every man that Paul brought to light in Romans 13, to walk in love. And break the text down into two parts. Our outline is a very simple outline. In verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, we see the command. The command. Paul says, walk in love. But really he says, and walk in love. This command to walk in love is, is an um, explanation. It further explains what he says in verse 1. That's why there's that connecting and there. We're to imitate God. And specifically, he says, we're to imitate God by walking in love. He uses this image of walking, this metaphor of walking all the time. Paul loves this picture. He uses it in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He uses it in verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk any longer in the futility of their minds. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says, we're not to walk in darkness, but to walk as children of light. And in chapter 5, verse 15, he says, be careful how you walk, so that's to walk in wisdom. The Christian life is a stroll. It's a walk. It's a walk. It's not a sprint. It's not a catapult. And it's not a plane ride where you just sit back and you arrive at your destination. It is putting one foot in front of the other, day after day, 
It is progressive in that we are slowly, one step at a time, one day at a time, becoming, hopefully, in practice, what we are in position. What we are in position, which is perfectly righteous. This is one of Paul's favorite word pictures to describe the cadence of our Christian lives. It's like walking. It's like walking. He uses a term figuratively to describe our lifestyle. The habitual pattern of our lives is to be one of walking in love. And so he gives us command. We are to live a life characterized as Christians by love. Now we need to understand what Paul means by this word, love. There's a term, and terms have meaning. The word here in verse 2, and even this is even the word um, used in verse 1, when he talks about us being beloved or loved children. Um, there are the word or word that words that he uses to describe love here are uh, is the word agape. When many of us have studied the Bible for a little length of time, you know that there's multiple words in Greek for love, um, and uh, they each convey different meanings. And a lot has been written and preached about those different meanings. You know, there's there's eros, which is a speaks of physical desire, sometimes an impulsive kind of self-gratifying affection. There's phileo, which is another term for love, which is, refers to that sort of brotherly love. We memorize that in our section in Romans 12. Uh, and then there's this word agape, which is often referred to as unconditional love. Uh, that's how it's typically taught. But I'm here to pop your bubble this morning because that's actually not that accurate. In other words, the reality is that the words for love get their meaning not by their structure, right? How, not the actual word itself. It it's, it's, gets its meaning from its context. Context determines the meaning of every single word. That's actually a fallacy. Uh, and a lot of guys, including myself over the years, have made that mistake. It's called the root fallacy. Right? Words are not, don't get their meaning by their structure, by their etymology. Um, right? Butterflies are not made out of butter. And pineapples don't come from pine trees. Right? Right? So the word nice in English, the root of that word in Latin is uh, nasius, which means ignorant. So you know, if we were to apply the, those kind of principles to how we interpret Scripture... Uh, we would make, you know, if we did that in English, obviously we would make some serious errors in our understanding of the term. And it's, we can make that same mistake in Scripture as well. In other words, agape means love, but it can be selfless love, but it can also refer to other kinds of love. And it is used that way in other contexts. It is love that's given irrespective of merit, but it's often used to describe the love that seeks the highest good of others, regardless of cost. And um, the word phileo, the second most common New Testament word for love, is used in sometimes the exact same way. In fact, it's used in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, to speak of our love for God. And of God's love, the Father's love for Jesus. In, Rome, in John 5, verse 20, he uses that love. That's clearly not just a brotherly love. That's a, that's a love that's... Um, uh, there's no greater love. Jesus' love for the apostle John in John chapter 20, verse 2. 
he's described, again, using the word phileo. So it, it just depends on the context. The, the context determines the meaning of the, of the word. That's all I'm here to tell you this morning. So um, if you run across that, and, and you may be tempted to think, I mean, that's a good starting point for interpreting and understanding if you have a commentary that mentions that, but that's not determinative. The structure of the word is not determinative. So Paul lays forth, get back to my point here, kind of off on a tangent. Paul lays before us a straightforward command that as believers, we're to be imitators of God. More specifically, we're to be imitators of God who live a lifestyle characterized by love. So we need to define this term, love. Um, what did Paul mean when he said this, when he challenges us to walk in love? And again, when the world uses the term love, they often mean physical desire or positive emotions. It's usually how the term is used. Um, it never really rises above that, right? I love ice cream, and I also love my wife. Um, but those things are not equal. And, but the world sometimes makes them equal, um, how many songs have been written about falling in love? And um, how many marriages have fallen apart because, quote-unquote, the husband or wife or both fell out of love with one another? Uh, it, it's a common term, and those uses of the term in our vernacular, in our culture, only muddy up our understanding of this term in Scripture. If we're going to understand Paul's use of the term love here, we need to let the context determine the meaning. The context determines the meaning. That's how it works with all Bible interpretation that's faithful. He gives us this command, walk in love. And then he goes on in the text to define for us what that means, which leads us to our second point. So we see the command, walk in love, and the bulk of our time will be in this second point. And we'll call this second section, the last part of verse 2, the comparison. The comparison. Paul says, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Paul's making a comparison. Very simple comparison, just like he does in the previous verse, uh, previous chapter at the end, verse 32. He defines for us what it means to walk in love. We're to walk in love the way Christ has loved us. That's how we're to love the world, to love others. This is nothing new from Paul. The, this command uh, to walk in love is simply echoing Jesus' own words by, um, in the upper room to his disciples. If you look with me for just a moment at John 13, Jesus is um, nearing the cross. He's the celebrating the Passover with the disciples. They're in the upper room. There's a lot of instruction that's happening. But the very beginning of this, this gathering, he teaches them um, at the, you know, later on in verses 14, 15, and 16. But in the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus, it says, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself, and then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he begins this whole um, teaching time by doing something quite astounding, which is to wash the disciples' filthy feet. And then if you can read about that all the way down into chapter uh, verse 20, and then in verse 21 to 30, he discloses that Judas will betray 
them. And then um, at the end of all of that, in verses um, 31 to 34, he actually gives this instruction, particularly in verse 33. He says, little children, I am with you a little longer. You will seek me. And I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So Christ commands his disciples, and by extension all of us, to love one another in the way Christ has loved us. Does that make sense? Again, chapter 15, uh, look over a page or two in your Bibles in verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So both of these verses are using the same comparative term, the same adverb to describe the way in which our love is to manifest itself. He's making a comparison. Christ's love for his own is the model of love that we are to follow, that we are to follow. So the question then becomes, in what specific ways has Christ loved us? If we're to love others the way he loved us, well, what's unique to the way he loves us that would then inform the what we owe to others? If his love is the standard that we imitate, that we're to walk in, we need to understand how he has loved us. And I want to point out two kind of sub-points, two ways in this section, this is not exhaustive by any stretch. His love is greater and encompasses more than this, but it definitely is not less than this. It is not less than this. First, Christ's love is gracious. Christ's love for us is gracious. If you back up even into verse 32, because it kind of pulls together here. Verses 1 and 2 are sort of the summary of the previous thought. He says in verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as, same term, God in Christ also has forgiven you. He says, when you and I are born again, if we're truly born again, the new self, which he describes in the previous verses, will have laid aside all sinful vices. All sinful vices. In verse 31, he says, uh, where all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander are to be put away from you, along with all malice. All of these things are no longer what dominate and characterize the believer's heart and life if we belong to him. And in its place, verse 32 says, we're to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So, Literally, forgiving one another there could be translated being gracious to one another. Being gracious to one another. How do we do that? He tells us, just as God has been gracious to you. Just as God has forgiven you. Christ-like love is gracious toward others to the degree that God has been gracious with you and I couple of points to draw out. First, kind of sub-sub points. <laughs> if you're outlining people, this would be like 2A1. <laughs> Christ, 
Christ-like love works itself out in the context of human relationships. Christ-like love works itself out in the context of human relationships. He says, be kind to one another, compassionate and gracious toward one another. You cannot claim to be loving others with Christ-like love if that is not working itself out in the context of your day-to-day relationships, whatever those are. You, You can't say, I'm loving my spouse or young person. You can't say that you're loving your sibling, your brother, your sister, whatever, and then not be kind to them <laughs> and not be compassionate toward them and then not be gracious towards them as the pattern of your life. You can't say you're loving your fellow brothers and sisters in the church and then slander them or, or walk around embittered against them. You can't say that you're loving your coworkers when all you do is chew them up and spit them out in your mind and complain about them to others. See, on a horizontal level, Christ-like love works itself out in real life in the context of human relationships. Second sub-point, Christ-like love moves toward others irrespective of personal merit. It moves toward others irrespective, meaning it doesn't matter, of personal merit. Was Christ gracious with you and I because we deserved it? Was he kind to us because we were worthy of his kindness? We know that's not true. Of course not. When Christ went to the cross, as we sang earlier, he did so when we were his enemies. He were his sworn enemies. Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us at the right time. I mean, this is, this is so contrary to our natural instincts. We don't simply love those who love us back. That's not love. That's not love. We can't only do good, Jesus says, to those who are good to us. He says even tax collectors and Gentiles do that, people without the Holy Spirit. He says, what more are you doing than the world? So Christ-like love is gracious. It is gracious to those who do deserve it and those who don't. Those who don't. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, verse 44. Or as we're memorizing, Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Christ-like love that's gracious isn't extended on the basis of personal merit or the person's worthiness. That's his point. We delight 
to show favor rather than to get even. That's what grace is. We delight. That's what the term means. It's a delighting to show favor rather than to get what is owed. So I ask you, is Christ-like love manifesting itself in the context of your personal relationships? Is that the case with your spouse? Is that the case with your children? Is that your pattern in the workplace? Is it your pattern in the church? I mean, see, it works itself out in real relationships. Real relationships. Are you showing Christ-like love to others regardless of whether they deserve it or whether they've earned it this week or this month or this year? What, what happens when your spouse, and this never happens to me, but if it did, disappoints you? What happens when other uh, brothers and sisters in the church don't live up to your expectations? Well, young people, what happens when your parents sin against you? They don't fulfill their God-given responsibilities. I mean, well, how do we respond in those kinds of situations? Do we withhold affection? Do we cut off communication? Do you grow embittered? Do you retaliate? Do you get even? Or do you, as Paul commands us here, move toward them in kindness, show them compassion, understand the frailty of their flesh, and delight to show them favor rather than what's owed? Christ-like love, the model of love that we're called to follow, is first gracious. That's the comparison that's made. Now, the second point, so it'd be kind of like A, and this is letter B. From the text, Christ-like love gives sacrificially. Christ-like love gives sacrificially. So this term love kind of lives up to our common Christian knees definition of agape love. I just want you to know it's not always the case. Christ-like love gives of itself to others. He says, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. It gives to others. This, gave, this phrase, gave himself up, obviously refers to holistically to his death and his resurrection in our place as sinners it's the gospel. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, willingly set aside what was his, the glories of heaven. He sacrificed that for us. For us. He wasn't led to the cross against his will, kicking and screaming. He was not swept up in a movement that he could not control. He was not held ransom by the devil or forced to surrender his authority. It says he gave himself up for us. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy set before him, he willingly endured the shame and the humiliation and the agony of the cross. He gave away his life for us as a supreme demonstration of his love. He gave himself for us. John chapter 10, verse 11. 
Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. I mean, Christ, on account of his love for us, laid down his life. Nobody forced him to do that. Nobody had to. That's the point. He was willing to set aside heaven's glory and to die on a cross to become sin, Paul says, so that we might be counted the righteousness of God in him. He goes on to say in John 15, just a few verses over, chapters over in verse 15, excuse me, chapter 15 and verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says if there's no greater love that can be demonstrated on earth than the life you give away to save someone else's life. Again, he's previewing the cross, which was only hours away. So we learn something about the love that we are to have. Christ-like love is love whose first and consuming impulse is giving itself to others. And giving itself to others for the highest good and their well-being. Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, Paul says, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And this is what he did. He gave himself up for me. So here we see this connection between Christ's love and his giving of himself for us. Now, it's important to note, just as an aside... To note who Christ gave himself to. He gave himself for us in our place. But who did he offer himself to? Over the centuries, the question has been asked, who, who killed Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Was it Satan? Paul tells us, verse 2, he gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, meaning God the Father, as a fragrant aroma. Who killed Jesus? The Father did. The Father did. Isaiah 53, verse 10, foreshadowed the sacrifice of the Son of Man, the suffering servant, and it says the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for our sin to the Father, as an offering and sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. Like the Old Testament sacrifices, Jesus laid himself on that altar, as it were, as he went to the cross. He offered himself as the final and only acceptable sacrifice for our sins. And he did that because he loved us. Jesus' love is humble. It is selfless. It is willing And in so doing, he willingly absorbed every drop of punishment for the sins of those who would trust him. In those few hours on the cross, he somehow, 
in a mysterious way that we cannot really fully wrap our minds around, he absorbed all the wrath for the sins of his people. Incredible. And because he gave himself for us, our sin and the wrath that God has toward our sin has been exhausted. It has been poured out so that we could now be called his beloved children. It's astounding. So when Paul says walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, we need to understand that Christ-like love is love that gives sacrificially. It gives sacrificially of our time. It gives sacrificially of our attention. It gives sacrificially of our treasure. It gives sacrificially to see Christ fully formed in others. It gives sacrificially by giving up all personal preferences or what's easiest or what's most convenient. It gives sacrificially, perhaps even to the point, though God may not require this, to the point of surrendering our own lives for the benefit of others. And by sacrificial, I don't mean out of our surplus, okay? Like, like oh, I have this little extra over here, and you can have some of that if you want, That's not what sacrificial means. Like when we give sacrificially to the church, it's not out of what's left over. It's it's out of the, the, the reality of what we have, what God's given to us. We give sacrificially. This is Christ like love. And yet, when I look out at how the Lord defines love here in the scriptures, and then I look out at the church, I can't help but notice how little of this kind of love. Christians have for others, especially over the last year and a half. When the first thing out of God's people's mouth is, don't tell me what to do, rather than, how can I serve? You know Christ-like love is missing. Matthew says, well, Jesus says in Matthew 24, that in the last days when chaos of the world breaks out, Jesus said, because of lawlessness has increased, the love of many will grow cold. That's a specific prophetic sort of utterance for the future that has yet to come. But the principle applies. Where there's chaos, when lawlessness abounds, the love of many kind of gets extinguished. Rather than love, people's response is one of anger, resentment, bitterness, selfishness. When the world speaks about love, it almost always exclusively has to do with gratifying the flesh and self. Does this person make me happy? Does this person meet my needs? Does this relationship fill up my life? Does the situation measure up to my expectations? If it does, good. If it doesn't, that's not Christ-like love. Christ-like love isn't concerned about gratifying the flesh or yourself, but about sacrificially giving. How can I make this person's joy complete? How can I meet their needs? How can I strengthen this relationship? How can I serve this body of believers and How can I best protect those around me who are weak, who are vulnerable? This is how Christ loves us. He gave himself 
up for us. We owe it to everyone that we come in contact with to walk in love and to follow Christ's example. He says, oh, no man, anything except what? To love one another. It's a debt you'll never finish paying off. Neither will I. Christ-like love is gracious. The comparison here, it is gracious. It's tenderhearted. It's compassionate. It works itself out in real relationships. It's not on the basis of merit. And Christ-like love gives sacrificially. So then we come back to the, the text. How can we then, as fallen, frail creatures, we're kind of left with that dilemma at the beginning, how do we imitate God? who demands perfect obedience to his standard every moment of every day of all eternity. God never wavers from his standard. He's always God in, every, in the fullest sense of, of his perfections at all times. Always has been and always will be. How do we do that? How do we imitate that? The answer is in the text. We can only do that because he has loved us. We can only do that because we are his beloved children. When I was young, little, uh, my dad used to drink a lot of coffee. Um, he worked in an office. We lived up in New England, and he drank, I don't know, like ten, they had like free coffee in the office. Back then, that was like a big deal. And so he drank like eight, ten cups of coffee a day. So when he was home on the weekend, he just drank coffee all the time. So every time I saw my dad, whether it was early in the morning reading his Bible, uh, listening to, you know, tapes, sermons, uh, or outside working in the yard, whatever, he was always drinking coffee or in the evening's tea. Just always had a cup of coffee or tea with him. I remember when I was really young, I was outside with him one day. He was washing the cars or mowing the grass or something in the driveway, and he had a cup of coffee that was pretty much empty. And so I sat down on the steps, kind of watching him, and I, I kind of sat down, and I crossed my legs one over the other, leaned back, and I was pretending to drink the coffee. My mom thought it was cute, so she took a, a picture. Remember the Polaroids? Shake the Polaroids. I don't know how old I was. In the picture, I look like I'm 12, so I was probably two, something like that. I was little. Why did I do that? Why did I, why did I do that? Because I was his beloved son. My parents had so loved me. They were so devoted to love and care for me that I was content. I was secure in that love. I was a son imitating a good father. I couldn't imitate him in every way, certainly. Just by nature of my size, my age, but I could imitate him some in some way. And just as a beloved son imitates a good father or a beloved daughter imitates a good mother, so God's beloved children should imitate their good father who is in heaven. We can do that because as a believer, you and I have the spiritual life of God within us. We have the DNA to imitate our Heavenly Father. The spiritual DNA is in us through the Holy Spirit. And just as we would expect the physical genes of a person who, in, 
they inherit from their parent to lead them to reflect that parent's characteristics in some way. So we should expect a believer's spiritual genes, so to speak, to reflect the moral character of our Heavenly Father. That's why Paul says that you and I as believers should walk in love. We should say, yes, of course. It's part of our spiritual DNA. 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8, John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The command Paul gives is this, walk in love. The comparison Paul gives is God's love for us demonstrated in the person and work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Our commitment then must be to make Christ-like love the practice of our lives. It's what we owe to everyone, everyone, in our homes, in the church, in the world. All who need Christ, all who have Christ, we are to love them and to give ourselves up for them. This is our debt. And we will never, ever pay it off. So what is man's responsibility? Paul says, Oh man, no man anything except to love one another. Next week, we'll look at God's sovereignty. How does that reality come alongside God's absolute providence and control of all things? We'll think about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you loved us with that kind of a love. It is uh, hard to imagine what kind of sacrifice that entailed for you to condescend to love us. We feel the weight of that in our own hearts. We see the glory of that. We pray, Lord, that we would in some way, shape, or form begin to walk in love ever more increasingly day by day, week by week, year by year, so that Christ would be fully formed in us, that we might bring others into that love. Lord, we pray that we give testimony to that as the scripture says, it is as we love one another that the world knows that we are your disciples. I pray that that would be increasingly true of our church in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.